But the rest of you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. It's on page 1160. Ephesians chapter 6, page 1160 in one of those pew Bibles. As we continue our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, for those of you with us for the first time this Sunday, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're near the end of a a series in Ephesians, and today we come to chapter 6. We're looking at verse 5. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for the light and the warmth of your word. We thank you that you give clarity. We thank you, God, that you speak to our hearts. And so, God, as we come to your word this morning, we, uh, we come looking for a word from heaven. We come to hear what your Holy Spirit would say to us. God, we come not to hear any pundits or to read an opinion column or to read the best-selling book of the month, nor even to hear a preacher preach, but we've come to hear the living God. And we believe that this is your word and that your spirit is alive and that through the word and spirit, you speak your word to our hearts. God, I pray that you'd be with this congregation this morning. There are so many needs that are out there. Lord, I pray for those who are uh, beset with sickness, with illness. Lord, would you raise them up? Whether they're little infants or the elderly or anyone in between, Lord, would you raise them up and give them strength, strengthen their bodies? God, I pray for anyone who's still out of work in this economy. Thank you, Lord, that the economy is picking up, but we pray for those who are still unemployed, that you would give them a job, that you would provide for them and their families. Lord, that you would give them hope and encouragement in this difficult time. God, I pray for anyone who's come here today with a huge burden on their heart, and everyone's sitting here looking nice and smiling, and yet they're on the verge of tears because of what's going on in their life. God, I pray that this morning you would touch their heart, speak a word of encouragement to them. Lord, I pray for any of us here who need uh, a kick in the pants from you who need to be woken up and need to be put back on the right track with Christ. Lord, there's some of us here who this week and the last month have slid back into worldly ways. We've gone back to the old life, and we need to come to Christ again. So, Lord, bring us back to yourself. Whatever work needs to be done in our hearts, God, we pray that you would do it now through your Spirit. And so we look forward to hearing what you have to say to us. We pray this. What are we supposed to do with this? (laughs) You know, the last few uh, weeks, if you've been with us, have been incredibly practical. We've been studying Ephesians uh, 5 and 6, and we looked at husbands and wives for several weeks, and then we looked at slaves and mass, uh, rather parents and children. It's been incredibly practical stuff. I mean, this is stuff you can just take right home and put into practice and start doing and living. I mean, you love that kind of stuff, right? And people are like, oh, yeah, I need help with my family. And even if you're not married, even if you don't have kids, you can still see how it applies. You can still think about it. But then we hit verse 5. It's about slaves. And it's like, I don't know a slave. 
Do you know any slaves? Fortunately, thank God, there's no more slavery in America. So it's been a hundred and uh, what about 40 years since we've had slavery in this country. It's been abolished. This is a wonderful thing. So what do we do with this text? Does it have anything to say to us at all in the modern world, or is it just kind of a, 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 an interesting historical side note in our Bibles? Is this God's word to us in some way? And if so, how? So that's what I'm sort of wrestling with as I've studied this passage, what it says to us. But the, the way you figure out what the Bible has to say to us is you must first understand what it was saying to the people at that time. So we have to understand the Bible in its historical context. You know, the number one rule for interpreting the Bible is interpret it according to context. Now, the number two rule for interpreting the Bible is interpret it according to context. And, of course, the number three rule for interpreting the Bible is you interpret it according to the context. You know, this is how cults tear apart Bible passages. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they use the Bible, but they kind of use it the same way that uh, Dr. Frankenstein used body parts. They, uh, they, they take a verse here, and they take a verse there, and they sew it all together, and they make up some new theology that, it, well, it's from the Bible, right? But it's not according to context. So to really interpret Scripture, you have to interpret it by what... The, the context says that includes the historical context. So the first thing to do is to understand slavery in the ancient world. And that's important because because when we hear the word slavery, our minds as Americans jump to antebellum American slavery. That's where we instantly think of. We think of cotton fields and we think of the Underground Railroad, and and that's our context. But we have to kind of step away from that and understand what slavery meant in the Roman Empire, different than slavery. In America, generally speaking, uh, slavery in the Roman Empire—if you could sort of give a vague generalization—slavery in the Roman Empire was better than American slavery, but still slavery. So, uh, in fact, here's what I want to do: if you take out your sermon notes for a minute, I try to think about how to cover a little bit of this historical background. And so, I thought I'd just give you a pop quiz. Uh, I thought that'd be more fun than me just prattling on. If you look at the front of your sermon notes, there's a little pop quiz: slavery in the Roman Empire. Ten questions, and I want you to just go through those. Get a pencil if you have one. You now have one minute exactly to answer this pop quiz. That's about six seconds a question. So you can do this. Easy. Ready? Go. Okay, time's up. Uh, what do you guys... All right, a minute. That's right. Keep going. Ten questions. There are some true, false, fill in the blanks. I'll give you a minute to do this. Does it help if I talk while you're doing the test? Does it help to just... Okay. Fifteen seconds. All right, time's up. Good job. Pass in your tests. Uh, number one, slaves comprised how much of the Roman Empire? Answer is, well, we don't really know. 
Uh, it's somewhere between, scholars guesstimate, between 15 and 30% of the Roman Empire are slaves. So if you had between 15 and 30%, you go ahead and check that off. We don't really know. Higher in the cities, less in the uh, uh, agricultural areas. Number two, what was the primary source of generating new slaves? What's that? Conflict? Is that what some, what's that? Conquest. Yeah, war. That was it. POWs was number one way. They also, obviously, slaves were born to slaves, and obviously, uh, you know, like the movie Gladiator, there were pirates who kidnapped people and, and made them into slaves. But for the most part, it was war. Uh, instead of killing POWs or setting them free, they enslaved them. Now, I think that's important because uh, that means that slavery in Rome was not racial. I think that's what we have, one of the things we have to keep in mind, because we think slavery, we think in terms of of, of the racial inequities in America, but in Rome, Rome it wasn't uh, racial at all. You just had to lose a battle. And, and you could be a Jew, you could be a Germanic tribesman from the north, you could be an Egyptian. You, you could. Slaves were not a social class. They were a legal class, but they weren't a social class. In other words, it's not like you looked around and saw some people wearing certain clothes. You said, oh, those are the slaves down there. The social position of a slave, and this is again different from America, the social position of a slave depended upon his uh, master's social position. So if you were the slave of the emperor of Rome, you may be a slave, but you're one of the most powerful people in the whole empire. You may be a, a ruler and a magistrate and still be a slave. So the social position of slaves varied greatly. It really depended upon the master's social position. Uh, slaves are part of the family household. That's why when we're reading Ephesians 5, Paul goes from husbands and wives to parents and children to slaves and masters. Because if you're going to talk about households in the ancient world and you leave out slaves, you're leaving out a big part of households because uh, that's where slaves were. So part of your social status was the social status of your household. Four, true or false, slaves have the legal status of being possessions that could be bought and sold. True. Give you an easy one there. Um, yeah, they were things. So socially, they ranged throughout society, but legally... They were chattel. They were objects. As Aristotle said, they were living tools. And they could be bought and sold and purchased and traded. And number five, slaves could amass wealth in order to purchase their own freedom. That's actually true. Uh, in the Roman Empire, you could buy your own freedom. In fact, slaves sometimes owned slaves. Uh, so you, you could make some money uh, that way. Which leads to number six, free men sometimes sold themselves into slavery in order to attain social mobility. True, actually. You, you could sell yourself into slavery, take the money, set it aside for your manumission someday, make some extra money, and then at some point down the road, buy yourself back out of slavery, and if you sold yourself to the right person, you might make a big hop up the social ladder. So, again, that's why I say slavery in Rome wasn't as bad as American slavery, but it's still slavery. And not everybody could buy their own freedom. You know, that's, that's an exception, really. Number seven, under Roman law, slaves cannot be beaten by their masters. False. Yeah, you're still a slave. You could be beaten. You could be tortured. You could be killed. Some people, some philosophers objected to the beating of slaves. Others supported it. But still, no one uh, took away that right. Number eight, a slaves could be found performing which of the following functions? Answer is all of them. Trick question. Yeah, anything. Slaves might be sewer cleaners. They might be in the mines. They might be rowing the galleys, you know, like you always see them. They could also be the magistrate administrating a whole city. 
depending on who the slave was and, and what their role or function was. Again, that's why they weren't tied to a particular social class. Uh, number nine, true-false, Roman law denied education to slaves. That's false. A better educated slave was worth a lot more because, again, they could perform all kinds of functions, including being doctors and philosophers and poets. Number 10, the average, the average slave's life was hard and undesirable, and that is true. So yeah, there were some slaves who were physicians and magistrates, but for the most part, you know, you didn't want to be a slave. Some people sold themselves to slavery. Did anyone here get 10 out of 10? Anyone here get 10 out of 10? Ah, well, I'm sorry. You did? I don't believe you. What's that? You got 10 out of 10? Oh, okay. <laughs> he's a second grader. You know, he's like, <laughs> so. So now, now here's what you got to do then is kind of try to reconstruct then it, with what little information we have what it's like being a slave in that world. And, and of course, it's better than American slavery because you could have some mobility. There were some more uh, uh, abilities to escape slavery if you needed to, but it's still slavery. It still stinks. So then... Now, here's what we want to do. Imagine that you're the Apostle Paul, and you have to write a letter to Christians, some of whom are going to be enslaved, and you have to write a letter to them encouraging them in their faith. What are you going to say? How would you write a letter to brothers and sisters who were in one of these conditions? What would you say in your letter? Revolt? Like Matrix revolutions, rise up! fight back, you know? Is that what Paul says? Interestingly, that's not what Paul says. He, he subverts slavery, but he does it not through political or armed revolution. He does it spiritually. And what he does, as, well, as we see here in our text, is that he tells slaves to view their lives as in Christ. Look at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters, with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. He brings Christ between the slave and the master. Verse 6, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for what he does, whether he is slave or free. So the way Paul addresses slaves in these often difficult, miserable, helpless conditions is that he uh, brings Christ between them and everything else. He reminds them that they are in Christ. That, that first and foremost, they're not slaves. They're in Jesus. That's who they are. And he's saying, so now, as a person in Christ, relate to your condition and your circumstances through that, uh, that filter of Christ, as it were. Now, if you've been studying Ephesians with us for the past several uh, weeks or months or last year, this should all sound familiar. It should kind of ring a bell. Because one of the themes throughout Ephesians has been our position in Christ, who we are in Jesus. That's one of the major emphases of the book. It's, this is who you used to be, but now Jesus came into your life and you came into Christ, and now you're a different kind of person. And so now it's just being applied to slaves, that's all. In fact, if you want to, uh, for one, for instance, of this theme in the book of Ephesians, look at Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1. Paul starts off by reminding them of their former life. He says, as for you, you were dead 
in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's who I was before Jesus. I was spiritually dead. I was stuck in my sins. I just went along with whatever the world did, whatever the world's values were, whatever the crowd was doing, that's what I did. Damnation. I was bound for hell. That, that was my future. But then God came into the picture. And in verse 4 it says, but Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We've been made alive with Christ. And then look in verses 6 and 7. Notice how many times he uses the phrase in Christ or with Christ. Verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So it's very repetitive, but he's just trying to drive the point home to me and to us that it's in Christ that we find our new identity. So what is a Christian? Maybe is one way of putting it. We tend to think of Christians as people who go to church or people who are religious in some way or people who go to a Bible study. But for Paul, yeah, Christians do that, but the essence of Christianity is being in Christ. And anytime you read Paul's letters in the New Testament, you just look for that little phrase, in Christ, and it's kind of like a summary for everything he teaches about Christianity. Ultimately, it's to be in Christ, to live in Christ, to exist in Christ. So now, everything in my life is redefined in terms of my relationship to Christ. Whether it's my work, my family, my marriage, my singleness, my parenting, my childlessness, my wealth, my leisure time, everything in my life now is redefined and reinterpreted in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I no longer, in a sense, relate to things directly, but only as they pass through Christ. See what I mean? It's a different mode of existence that we enter into. For those of you who are computer techie kind of people, uh, I kind of thought about it this way. Christianity is not like just loading a new application onto your computer called Jesus. I think sometimes we think about it that way. We have this desktop of our lives, and we have all these applications, work, family, leisure, friends, and different times we click on different ones. You know, we go to work and you click on the work application. And now it's Sunday, so I click on the Jesus application. Click, click. And now it's time for Jesus. And then I close that down and I go to another. That's not what it is. That's not what Christianity is. It's not just every Sunday you click on the, the cross application on your desktop. To be a Christian means that God wipes out your hard drive. Totally wipes it out and loads on a totally new operating system called Jesus Christ. He's not just a program. He's the whole operating system. And then all of the other things in your life, like work and family and money and, and singleness and friends or whatever it is that your life is, is now interpreted and operated on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything I do is in Christ. It's through Christ. Being a Christian is not just believing in Jesus. Being a Christian is not just making Jesus number one in your life. Being a Christian means that Jesus is my life. He is everything that I am and have and, and can be. So, 
view life that way through Christ. Uh, look at your sermon notes on the inside second page. I think this is what Jesus was talking about in the quote at the top there of Luke 14. I think Jesus was talking about this all-encompassing nature of following him. It says large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I think, first of all, it's interesting to note that Jesus said this when the large crowds were traveling with him. You know, it sort of goes contrary to a conventional wisdom. He had this big following. So you'd think he'd do stuff to try to build his following and keep more people coming. Instead, he turns around to this huge crowd and says, by the way, if you guys really want to follow me, you've got to hate your families. You know, what? Oh, this guy's crazy. You know, I get to see people turning around and leaving. This isn't how you build a following. You don't say wild things like this. But Jesus did. Because he was trying to sift out of that crowd who was really following him and who was just there because, wow, this is kind of interesting. This is the new fad. Here's this Jesus guy. I heard he does miracles. That'd be cool to see one. And so you have all this mixed crowd. You have some people who are really following him and some people who are just kind of long for curiosity's sake or whatever reason. And so he says to this crowd, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Did he mean that you have to literally hate your family if you're going to be a Christian? That I literally have to hate my wife if I'm going to love Jesus? I don't think that's what it means. I think he's using hyperbole or exaggeration. In other words, he's using a strong statement to kind of grab attention and get us to think about it. In other words, what I think he's really saying is, if you're going to follow me, nothing can come between me and Christ. Nothing. Not even my closest associations can come between me and Christ. Christ has to be it. And so even as I relate to the dearest members of my family and my dearest friends, I do it through Christ and in Christ and to Christ and with Christ. I, I, I don't relate to anything directly. I don't know, I'm trying to articulate this kind of idea that's sort of nebulous, but it's living in Christ. Look at the box there. You see that Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote in the box? Bonhoeffer says it better, so I'm just going to shut up and let him talk. In the, in the Cost of Discipleship, which is an amazing book, some of you read it, uh, Bonhoeffer was a martyr in World War II under Hitler. Uh, in fact, he was part of an attempt to uh, assassinate Hitler. Interesting story, and then eventually he was hanged for his faith. It says, uh, we must face the truth that the call of Christ does, not, does set up a barrier between man and his natural life. But this barrier is no surly contempt for life, no legalistic piety. It is the life which is life indeed, the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ. By virtue of his, that is, by virtue of Jesus' incarnation, he has come between man and his natural life. There can be no turning back, for Christ bars the way. By calling us, he has cut us off from all immediacy with the things of the world. He is the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, between man and reality. So it's not that when you become a Christian, you get yanked out of the world and go to some uh, you know, supernatural plane. You're still in the world, but it's that now Christ is everything for you, and all of life is interpreted in, through, to, and for Jesus Christ. 
before I move on, I just want to stop and, I don't know, I, I see this as kind of a gut check for me, I, for you, I, I hope so too. I have to ask myself as I read Jesus' words, is this really what Christianity is for me? Or is it something more shallow and superficial? Is this what I understand it to mean to follow Christ, that he becomes my life? Because anything short of that is not Christianity. My fear is for myself and for all of us, kind of a nagging fear I have as a pastor of this church, is that, you know, yeah, the church is growing. It's really exciting. There's people coming into the church. New programs are forming. Great women's ministry, great elderly ministry, men's ministry, singles, you know, couples ministry, all these ministries popping up, Bible studies. We started a new service this fall. You know, all that kind of program stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is really exciting. But there's a danger for myself and for all of us that we can kind of get swept up in the organizational growth and become part of that and say, oh, yeah, I like this music and this service and I, I like the preaching and my kids like the Sunday school class or whatever and miss Christ completely because we're caught up in the, the excitement of a, a movement of people, which is good. I'm not against it. I'm just saying it's so easy to get caught up in the crowd and not to ask myself, but am I following Christ? And have I come to that place in my life where Christ is my all in all, where He is my life? Because if I have that, I have everything. And if I don't have Christ, I have nothing. And so I would just challenge you to, to check yourself, and I'll check myself and say, is it Christ that I'm following? Am I really living for Him in this way? Or have I somehow encapsulated Christianity and made it manageable like a little application on my desktop? Or is it the whole operating system that's running and interpreting everything in my life? And so this is the understanding of Christianity that Paul has. And so now he comes back to the slave. This person in perhaps a miserable condition, a hopeless condition in some cases, and he says to the slave, look, you are slaves of Christ. You are in Christ. And so now you must look at your slavery through the lens of Christ. It's not for your masters. It's, it's for Christ. That's who you're serving. He's the one who's going to reward you. It's all in Christ and for Christ. Now notice what happens. Look back at our, our text. If I can get us back, get myself back, reel myself in here. Ephesians 6.5. Notice that one of the, the thing that happens when slaves start viewing their services to Christ is that it affects the way in which they do their work. Verse 5, slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. You hear that theme, from the heart, sincerity, you know, with your whole heart, sincerity of heart. You know, he just keeps repeating these phrases. So in other words, without Christ, there's a temptation to serve in a superficial way. To just do enough to get by so that the master can see it and say, well, you're doing okay. And then, okay, now I'm done. I can now kick back. And, you know, just doing enough to make the master happy. Instead, Paul's saying, no, 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 you're serving Christ. And so whether the master sees you or doesn't see you, you need to serve God faithfully. Integrity, I guess that's what this is about. Uh, some of maybe you've heard this definition of integrity. Integrity is who you are when nobody's looking. You know, that's sort of that classic definition. It's a good definition. Integrity is who you are when nobody's looking. 
And so for the Christian, God is always looking. Jesus is always looking. And so I, I'm, even if no one else sees me and what I do, whether where I am alone, God always sees who I am and what I'm doing. So I need to do everything as unto the Lord. That's what Paul's saying to the slaves. It made me think of the story of Joseph in uh, sold into slavery. He comes into uh, the house of Potiphar, who's the captain of the uh, Pharaoh's guard, actually. And he becomes a servant in Potiphar's house. And because Joseph is such a man of integrity and serves the Lord the way Paul's talking about, he rises up and he's eventually placed over the whole household. It's all under his charge. But the Bible also tells us that, uh, well, I'll read it to you. There's a little wrinkle in the story. It says, Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing, and here's the key phrase, and sin against God? Because Joseph knew that, yeah, no one was looking, just him and, and, and Potiphar's wife. No one would know. It would just be his little secret, like something out of a, a sexual fantasy. And instead, he says, no, 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 God knows. And I am serving God, not men. And so I'm not going to sin against God. This is ultimately about who I am in Christ. And I think this is the touch point. I, I think, you know, we asked in the beginning, how does this text apply to us? Because it's written to slaves, and we're not slaves, and we don't know any slaves. So, I mean, how can we apply these verses to us? And I think this is the key. It's to understand that just as the slaves were in Christ, so I am in Christ. And so even though I'm not a slave, whatever I do in life, that's, that's the principle that's carried over. So yeah, you're not a slave, but you kind of feel like one. You work on the 17th floor in a cube farm for a big company, and uh, you sort of type away all day doing things that don't seem that productive or meaningful. And for you, Dilbert is not a cartoon. It's a documentary <laughs> of your life at work. And, and there you are in, in this company, and, and you're sitting in front of your computer, and, and you're doing this one little function that's not really that complex. It only took you about a month to figure out how to do it, and now you're doing it for years. You're doing this one function that's part of a larger, just big mechanical system that's, I guess, there to make money for people at the top of the building. And, and that's where you are, and, and you're just part of this, this cog in this big machine, and you think to yourself, like, well, what does this matter? Nobody cares. I'm totally expendable. They could get rid of me and bring someone else in to do the same function. I'm just kind of like a human gear. So, so you know, what does it matter? Why, why should I try hard? Why not just do enough to make the performance reviews and keep my job? Is it just enough to get by? Because no one really cares. Uh, speaking of Dilbert, it's, it's kind of like Wally on Dilbert. I don't know. If, does anyone here follow Dilbert? I love Dilbert. I don't even work in Boston. I'm addicted to Dilbert. I think it's hilarious. Something about Dilbert, he really speaks to the heart of life in a, a modern, organized world. Um, but anyway, Wally is this character. He's Dilbert's buddy. And Wally's job is to try to do no work. That's his goal in life. He tries to just exist and do as little work as possible. And this is this one cartoon here. I'll read it to you. I don't need to show it to you because there's nothing really to see. Dilbert's so plain. But um, uh, Wally comes into the pointy-haired boss. He says, I have a good idea for boosting my performance. You wisely coached us to use all of our vacation days every year 
because we come back recharged. My plan is to leverage that competitive advantage. I'll take a 15-year vacation and return 10 minutes before retirement. Then I'll be so recharged that I'll pounce and do 20 years of work in 10 minutes. Then he says, unless it's near a holiday, in which case, do you mind if I leave early? Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and you know, some people you know it. You know people you work with. You, maybe it's yourself. You know there are people who are just saying, what's the bare minimum I can do to get my work done, to not get fired, get my paycheck, and get out of here? But if I am in Christ, if you are in Christ, yeah, maybe the job is tasteless. Maybe it's something you're not really interested in. But I'm serving the Lord. And the Lord is going to reward me even for the things that seem meaningless and purposelessness, if, purposeless if I do it as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, Paul says in Colossians, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Or maybe you're not in the business world. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you're caught in the seemingly uh, karmic cycles of laundry and dishes and picking up after the kids who then take the toys out and you put them back and they take them out and, and you're driving them around and you just, your life just kind of seems to go around and around like this and the whole time you can feel your body aging and the whole time you feel your college education atrophying in your head and <laughs> it's starting to fade away and, and you're just like, what, what is this for? And then you start looking ahead in, in your more gloomy moments and you realize that, yeah, someday your kids may move away. And someday your kids may have as good a relationship with you as you have with your mom. And so you're uh, thinking, huh, why am I doing this? What is this for? Why am I engaged in this activity? What if my kids never, they'll never appreciate what I've done for them. My husband comes home and he kind of says, mm -hmm. and, you know, no one appreciates what I'm doing here. Am I just lost in this meaningless uh, sort of domestic uh, a cycle from which I cannot escape? And Paul would say to you, no, no, you're in Christ. And so whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. The Lord sees your labors. And yeah, your kids may not appreciate it ever. And your husband may only give you like 10% of the affirmation you deserve. But I'm telling you, you're doing it for the Lord. You're doing it for His glory. And so even the most domestic thing, you know, changing a diaper as unto the Lord is pleasing to Him. <laughs> Wiping down a counter as unto the Lord is pleasing to Him. Because Christ changes everything. It's like this quote on uh, page 2 of the sermon notes. Uh, underneath the phrase they're working as unto the Lord. Peter O'Brien is a commentator. He says, ultimately then, the distinction between the sacred and the secular breaks down. Any and every task, however menial, falls within the sphere of his lordship and is done in order to please him. Or maybe you're a student and you have this really lame teacher <laughs> and, and you realize this teacher should not be a teacher. You realize that this teacher is only in the teaching profession because he, he gets the summers off. That's the only reason he's there. And he shouldn't be a teacher. He's not worthy. It's just that he's been in the classroom for 25 years and no one really wants to fire him. And, and you have this teacher and you think, this is so stupid. I had a teacher like that in high school. Tenth grade, I was in high school. And uh, this, this uh, teacher I had was so lame. He was so just like, you know, unplugged from the classroom and just kind of biding his time until retirement. He would teach for about five, ten minutes at the beginning of class, and I kid you not, the rest of the class he would hand out word searches. I was in tenth grade, I'm doing word, you know, finding word. It was so stupid. And you know, you, you get a class like that, you get a teacher like that, and you just think like, well, who cares? 
This is the dumbest class. I'm not going to learn anything. Yeah, I'll cheat. Who cares? It's not like it means anything. Why not cheat? Why not share answers? Why not do the bare minimum to get by in this class that is not advancing my education one iota? And, and Paul would say, no, 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 you're in Christ. So yeah, it's a stupid class, but that's not the issue. You're in Christ, so serve as unto the Lord, not for men. It doesn't matter what the teacher does. It doesn't matter if you never learn anything from it. You're going to learn to serve Christ in the middle of your difficulties. Or just one more, for instance, and I'll, and I'll close. Uh, so it's time to go. What if, you're, what if you're a shut-in? What if you're elderly and you can't drive, you can't get out, you're widowed or widower, and most of your friends are deceased? There's a few who are still around who are your close friends, but you know, they can't get out so well either. So they, they come to see you every once in a while. And your kids, well, some of them live out of state, some of them live in the area, and they come to see you when they can, but their lives are busy. I mean, come on, they're full on with kids and work and everything. And so they can't see you that often. And they come to see you, but not as often as you'd like. And so you spend a lot of your days just kind of sitting around enduring physical pain because you're elderly and your body is hurting and aching. You know, what do you do in those circumstances? It's easy to think like, well, my life is over. I'm just kind of a living dead here. I'm sitting here alive, but my life is dead to the world. Nobody knows I'm here. Nobody cares. So what's my purpose, God? Why have you brought me to this? I was actually asked that once by a, a shut-in lady. I was visiting her, and we were just hanging out, chatting, and just talking about all this stuff. And, and she said, you know, Jeremy, why did the Lord put me in this situation? And, you know, I don't know. I get asked questions like that, and I freeze up. Maybe some of you just come out with it. I'm kind of not necessarily good as a pastor because I kind of go, uh... You know, I'm trying to think, like, what do I say? I mean, how do you answer a question like that? It's just so profound. How, how do you say something that's not just, like, trite, like, well, just trust the Lord. <laughs> you know, what, what do you say? So, uh, I, you know, unfortunately, the Lord, this is one of those times, doesn't happen every time, one of those times when the Lord gave me something to say. And the first thing that came to my head was mountain climbing. And so I, 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 said, uh, I said, you know, it's kind of like, I go, have you ever seen those people climbing Mount Everest? She's like, no. And, you know, to climb Mount Everest, you have all these camps. You have base camps, and you have to prepare. And, the, you know, at the bottom, it's really exciting, and everyone's there, and everyone's around you. And then you, there's all this next camp, and, you know, it's a little more intense. And until finally, when it's time to summit the mountain, you have to leave behind the camp. You have to leave behind all the comforts, and you have to summit the mountain. And it's lonely, and it's hard. And I said, you know how people climb up the mountain? I said, when you get near the top, it's like this. You know, this is how you go up Mount Everest, like this. This is about how fast, because there's so little oxygen, you can hardly breathe. You're just trying not to get frostbite and die. And, and I said, you know where you are right now in your Christian life? I said, you're just about to summit. And I said, you're just so close. And that's why it's like this. And that's why there's no one around you cheering your arms. You're not down in the base camp. You're, you're solo now. There's just a few stragglers with you who are making it up that mountain, but you're about to summit. And so I said, you know, just do it for the Lord. Even if all you do is sit around every day and just try to get out of bed, you're, doing, you're getting out of bed as unto the Lord. And if all you can do is wait on the Lord, then wait on the Lord. In fact, I don't know what glorifies God more than a person who is totally debilitated and all they can do is wait on the Lord because they're in the ultimate place of dependence in faith. Because when you're there, you can't rely on your own works anymore. You just have to rely on Christ. And it's the perfect picture of holiness is total faith and dependence. And so I believe that God prepares his elderly saints for heaven. They're in the final testing and perfection phase 
before they enter into eternal life. Because ultimately, and I'll, I'll close with this, it doesn't matter what you do for a living. God's not going get to heaven, get you to heaven and say, well, you did that for a living. You only did that. I don't care about this. I like that. No, no, that's not it. God's not going to look at how much money we made. He's not going to look at you know, what we owned. Or he's not going to look at whether we were married or single. That's, not, that's how we judge success. That's not how God judges success. God is to me, even to the end. Because what he says is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy I've prepared for you today. I'm out of time. Let's pray, huh? Oh, Lord God, I thank you that we are in Christ. Lord, we've been in the world and it was miserable. It was empty. It satisfied for a little while and then it got old. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've rescued us from that and brought us into Christ. And so now, God, uh, we, we live in this in-between world where we're in Christ and yet we're still in this reality. And Lord, we recognize that we face trials in this reality. We face jobs that seem pointless. We face difficult relationships. We face old age and infirmities. And Lord, this world is passing away and we still have a foot in it. And so, God, I pray that as we continue to exist in this world, we may do everything that we do as unto Christ knowing that that's what you're looking for is faithfulness, regardless of what we do for a living or how healthy we are or what our status is in life. So, Lord, I pray that you might help us to see all of our existence as in Christ. And I pray for anybody here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior in the way we talked about this morning. Lord, I pray that even right now you'd just be touching their hearts, that you'd be drawing them to yourself, that you'd be giving them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could believe and become a true follower. God, thank you for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.